0: We have a huge power of persuasion in the advertising industry to get people to buy things they don't need. What if we used it in the direction of good or to, to repair that, that problematic stuff? So I think it, it cre- it's crept through, it's like water cr- coming through the bottom of a door <laughs> until you realize you're in a room and, and you're gonna drown soon.
1: Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. Um, today we are talking with Gabby and Ben, the founders of Gigantic Fucking Solutions. Um, that's not a misprint, it is it is Gigantic Fucking Solutions. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the story behind that, um, You know why they chose that name for the site and the project they're working on, and why it sticks out so much. Gabby and Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank
2: Thank you you for having us. Uh, It it really was a eureka moment, actually. Um, To give it a bit of context and maybe give us a bit of context too in the the conversation, Um, Ben and I both come from advertising backgrounds. Ben's a copywriter and creative director and has been for over 20 years. I was a head of sales and executive producer in commercial production. So we come from advertising communications, both of us, and we're very kind of like steeped in that we started an ethical advertising agency invincible unicorn about two and a half years ago because we wanted to create an ethical company that tackled all the areas of ethics in our industry because we didn't think there was anything fundamentally wrong about selling products it was just a matter of well what are the products you're selling how are you selling them and what do you do to people in your communications in the way that you sell them are you empowering them with those communications or are you undermining them and making them insecure and we wanted to see if it was possible to create a company to do that and it's been a very interesting experience running an ethical advertising agency but what happened about a year ago just over a year ago is we went out for dinner and we were drinking cocktails and we have two children so uh getting to go out for dinner and drink cocktails is a relatively rare occurrence and uh and we had this long conversation about you know the ipcc report at that time gave us 11 years and we're doing this ethical advertising agency but it felt like we were playing on the periphery of crisis that is communication about the climate change and um surely we could do more surely there must be more that we could do and and we sat and we looked at what we were and we thought our value our greatest value is that we have a network of people that are a community that are the communications community. And it's pretty broad. It's not just where we come from in England or here in America, but people all around the world that we know who work in the same field as us. And it's a relatively small community. And then we have the skill set that goes with that. And surely bringing those two things together. Would have more impact potentially on the climate crisis and the communication of the climate crisis than us going and standing at a a march where the resource we're bringing is our body and there's nothing wrong with doing that it's absolutely vital that people protest on behalf of the climate crisis but we had this realization like you say that actually we undermine what our power is beyond that point that actually once you look at us as a whole community that becomes quite powerful rather than just, you know, little old me and what can I do? Because I think the existential crisis that is the climate crisis does have a tendency to make people feel really powerless and they can't do anything at all. Whereas a bit of objectivity makes you realize that actually it's only a bunch of people on this planet making things happen anyway. So why not us?
1: Yeah, it's a great perspective. And the truth is a lot of the bigger existential needs and crises do create that sense of powerlessness as an individual level. It's not just climate, right? Uh, racial justice is one of them. Um, world poverty, world hunger has long been one of them. Um, there are massive problems. Uh, you know, I think we all can agree that climate is if not the biggest, uh, from a long-term standpoint, it's in that tier one, just given everyone loses if earth loses, (laughs) I don't care what your culture is or what your beliefs are. Um, uh you we all lose if we lose this planet. Um but I think, yeah, I think there's there's real and we talked about that, Gabby, uh, you know, kind of climate anxiety. I think you called it eco-grief. Let's start with gigantic fucking solutions.com. It feels so good to say that. Like it's kind of therapeutic just saying gigantic fucking dot com.
2: There's an intention behind that. Um there's the intention that Ben will talk about, and then there's what we discovered as a result of having ourselves be called gigantic fucking solutions. So, so, what was the intention?
0: The intention was i mean I, I think as a on the on the top level okay it's it's fun and interesting and surprising and memorable, which are all the kind of things that I've been taught through my background in advertising that are handy. It was also to kind of show people that we want to do things differently because so many things are called you know climate action initiative or something like that that's both uh not memorable and very bland and doesn't feel like you're really into this particularly i mean it's taken 30 years to go from climate change to climate crisis that's not a big progression so the other thing that that happens is that when people see we've called it gigantic fucking solutions they understand we're not standing on ceremony and if you are offended by the word fucking um you should really not connect with us because uh you know there's a huge amount of terrible stuff going on in the world and swearing is way 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 down the list and if that's getting in the way for you, we're going to have trouble sorting out the um, the fact that the planet is in the middle of uh, human generated heat death.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's a. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it's it's a productive, conducive use of, you know, uh, uh, what what can be seen as abrasive language.
2: Yeah, we actually we have a bad parenting rule in our house, which is that, from our perspective, we we don't see swearing as a bad thing. Um, because it is actually harmless. The the harm is always in the intent behind the swearing. So in our house with our kids, we're like, you can swear internally, but you can never use it in anger. You can never use it to hurt anybody. Uh, It has to be used for emphasis and entertainment. And in many ways, that's what gigantic fucking solutions does is that we wanted to take um, the communication of the climate crisis, which has been siloed in this either extremely academic scientific space or in the polarized space, which is problematic because people then make it about what their political affiliation is, and it's not a political subject, or or it's just become very dry. So no one knows how to communicate it, about it in a way that actually activates them and excites them. And what we discovered as we started having conversations with people is that it sort of serves like a... Um, a courage builder because when you say gigantic fucking solutions at the beginning of a conversation, there's really nowhere to go from that. Like you can't, you can't mess up after that. Cause we've all agreed that saying gigantic fucking solutions is okay. And, and that works, even when we were speaking to people who've been in the Obama government and people who've been at COP26 speaking on a world stage. And it's kind of extraordinary that you kind of lift the, um, the the emperor's new clothes aspect of how we talk about climate change, and then discover that everyone speaks like this, <laughs> like everyone speaks like this. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who very very religiously don't, but generally speaking, in in media and in in communication and in politics, this is language people use. They just don't use it publicly or amongst themselves. So we're trying to take away some of those boundaries so that we recognize the community that we are trying to tackle something vital. And let's
1: be honest with ourselves. If mother nature had actual verbal oral voice, she would be beyond the point of using
2: curse words (laughs) (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Mother nature doesn't give a shit about swearing.
1: I think she oscillates quite a bit between anger, frustration and compassion. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) You are mother nature. In terms of how this came about, was there a, like a Eureka moment for you both where you're like, yeah, just fucking call again, gigantic fucking solutions. Was there, was there, do you remember that moment or did it just kind of come iteratively as you were putting this project and this work together? I'm um, curious both on when and how you met each other, uh, what, what brought you together. And then, you know, in that, in the course of your careers, when you started that process that, you know, got you to where you are today and what you're working on.
0: Uh, yeah so we met well our 20th wedding anniversary is coming up next month but we met about 20 and a half years ago is um I was making a commercial for a uh a, an English version of like Sprint or T-Mobile or whatever back back in 2000 and um Gabby was one of the actresses who came in to cast for the the role uh or to read for the role and I thought she was the best actress, um, and so we all went off to an island called Cozumel, uh, which is off Cancun, and uh, shot this commercial. And uh, Gabby and I kind of found that we had a lot in common there, and decided, hey, let's have a go at this. <laughs> and uh, so we came back. We came back home, and I literally proposed after I'd known her five days, which is kind of crazy. But then equally crazy, Gabby said yes. And so six months later, we got married in Vegas, and uh, that's the, that's the story of it all, really. Until like the other twenty years that have happened since. Um, but yeah, then I so I was a creative director, and Gabby was an actress. And then I think you know you can say this more than I can. But the um, the acting world is not only pretty tough. Gabby was also temping and stuff, and so we, we knew a bunch of people in advertising production, and it felt like that that's a turn Gabby could take uh you know in a more kind of solid, dependable way. Um so that's the path we went down. I think this is where I pass the story on to you.
2: Uh yeah. So I, I think getting engaged after five days and married after six months sounds really terrible at the time and then very romantic twenty years later. So we like telling people.
1: It's romantic if it works out, right?
2: Um yeah. It's always romantic. It's a good because
1: 'cause we're still together.
2: <laughs> so I think um what what we discovered on that on that shoot actually on on a boat between Cozumel and Cancun uh, with sharks in the water and everyone ducking down because there were rain clouds coming over was that we had a mutual love of all sorts of areas of culture and I I think that that is definitely sort of a fundamental aspect in our relationship and us working together is that there's a running joke in our house that often we share a brain so I think after twenty years of marriage when you also have Um, very similar like enjoyments of things like we both have a deep love of film and we both love music and we both have very similar aesthetic senses about things and a similar sense of humor that all of those elements kind of contribute to us creating things together and that that might be how our children have turned out and that might be initiatives like gigantic fucking solutions they sort of end up being expressions of the unit that we've become and what the what the, like, the input of all that culture and then the sort of spewing of it out as the, the married couple that we are.
1: And then in terms of the move you both made from, you know, you obviously didn't leave the ad creative industry. You just sort of recalibrated and refocused where you're putting your creative work and where you're pointing it towards. Um, and we'll get to The Invincible Unicorn in a second. Uh, when did that shift start for you? Like, when, when did this climate crisis become... You know, sort of your mission, respectively, and you now, how? When did you start going down the path that you know got you to where you are today?
0: Well, what's really weird is uh, we've we've tried to speak to lots and lots of advertising creatives, the, the higher up, the better. And it's, at one point, we ended up talking to my old boss, who was my boss in like 2005, and we we were chatting to him about the whole giant fucking solutions thing, and he was really interested. And then he said, Ben, don't you remember in 2005? You asked me to do this climate crisis thing that, you know, could turn up Because it was, it was the largest agency in, in the UK. And he said, this climate crisis thing, which could have, you know, um, helped that issue as far as we operate as a company. And I went, no. And he said, yeah, you did. You came up to me and said we should do this climate crisis thing. And I said, oh, uh, no, I don't remember doing that at all. So um, he he kept the receipts, as the kids say and said, yeah, you 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 were already talking about this stuff 15 years ago. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't remember doing that. But um, so it was clearly, it's been in the back of my mind. And in fact, I remember having a conversation with another creator when I first started in advertising, because I had just read that um, five of the hottest years in history had happened in the previous 10 years, I said, when we were having a drink. And he looked at me and went, so? And I thought, does that not sound terrifying to you <laughs> um and so i was sort of i was it was certainly something i was conscious of um you know way back when you know it, it, even in the 80s it was all um, holes in the ozone layer and all that kind of stuff but having actually shift to be a priority for us i think the conversation has just got louder and louder and louder to the extent that you know in a way that if you opened a newspaper 10-15 years ago there wasn't a climate crisis story there but Today, there's guaranteed to be one pretty much every single day if you read at least, a, if you're not on Fox News, if you're on like New York Times or Guardian or whatever, there will be a climate crisis story in there. So it's always front and center for us now. So I think it had got loud enough for, for us to believe that, you know, some someone has to do something. And I think the re- realization Gabby mentioned earlier on about the fact that there was no uh, communication happening um, that was effective, or that was being centrally organised, and that someone needed to just take that uh, obligation on and, and see what we could do with it. Was that that was the real realization that we we have a huge power of persuasion in the advertising industry to get people to buy things they don't need. What if we used it in the direction of good, or to to repair that that problematic stuff? So. I think it it cre- it's crept through it's like water cr- coming through the bottom of the door until you realise you're in a room and and you're going to drown soon. And I think it's just we're only
2: going to give you climate analogies. Climate analogies. <laughs> it's like it's, it's like you're on fire up the hill. Yeah. And, uh, it's like there's <laughs> in, in a hurricane
0: in your front room. <laughs> so yeah, it's um it was all those things together, and I think I think the experience is the same for a lot of people now. You you just can't ignore it and. That's what's
1: happened. So let's talk about, you know, this this notion of how to communicate climate change um, and climate needs and the climate crisis, and why it's been so hard. And certainly something we haven't solved yet. The the two of you are are, are making, you know, it seems like a great progress on working on those solutions. But you know, on a large population scale, it's far from solved. Why, why has it been so hard? Why, what what is it? Innately, and I, you know, I have thoughts on this because I think about this all the time. I, I definitely am like climate anxiety sufferer, like case study number one. Um, but curious from you both, as you're given your backgrounds in communications and advertising, why has this been so hard? What is it that you think that makes it so hard to talk about in a way that gets lots of people to get it and to change?
2: Um, I, I think there are several factors at play here. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug for somebody else's book right now. There is a book called um, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired Not to Think About Climate Change. It's written by a man called George Marshall, who I have just interviewed for um, a podcast for an advertising festival called Cyclope. And he is an activist and a writer and also has several organizations around climate communication one of them called Climate Outreach and another one called Climate Visuals, where he works with Getty and Yale to find the kind of visuals that people actually respond to in the climate crisis. He's done an enormous amount of work about it. And if people are interested in this, I can't recommend enough that they read the book. Um, And so there are a lot of factors in how the climate crisis has been um, communicated so far. One of the factors is that... um, The people that have been briefing communication about the climate crisis have other agenda. And they're not negative agenda. They're perfectly positive agenda. It's just that it's not the agenda of having people take action around the climate crisis. So often it's from environmental organizations who are awesome and the work they're doing is fantastic, but it is often very siloed. And when you have nonprofit organizations and they're making communications to the public, primarily what they want is donations. So the communications tend to be driven in order to have people want to put their hands in their pockets and donate to the company so the, comp- the, the the non-profit so that they can go off and continue to do their great work in that space right which is not the same as asking people to make communications about the climate crisis and then another area of issue is that where you would be getting powerful effective communications to people about the climate crisis is from governments and for a substantial period of time now governments haven't informed their populaces about the full scale of the climate crisis and what that impact looks like and what it's going to take to actually mitigate some of that impact. And and that is a very specific issue because a lot of those governments actually did say that they would do that when they signed the Paris Treaty. So there is a missing. So that's another area. And then there's this, this additional factor, which is that as a society, we have agreed silences around certain things. And and again, the gigantic fucking solutions thing is is one of those agreed silences. Like the agreed silence is that when we're in polite society, we don't swear. Like you don't swear at school and you don't swear in the office and you don't swear in government. Um, and And that there is an agreement around that. And in the same way, and George Marshall's book talks about this a lot, we have agreed silences Around the communication of the climate crisis, and partly because it is an existential threat, and and people don't want to wake up every day in a state of panic, so we have created circumstances where it's that much harder for us to be communicated to. But there is a third factor, and and this is the one that I think is most interesting from the perspective of what we're doing with gigantic fucking solutions. I spoke to an amazing man the other day whose name is Mustafa Santiago Ali, and he is. Uh, an environmental social justice act- activist. He's been in the EPA for 24 years. He's been part of extraordinary institutions. He's lectured at, at top Ivy League universities. And he talks about the fact that there is no longer any flavor in the climate communication conversation. So there used to be in the 60s, where we first starting started noticing these issues and addressing these issues. It was uh, a non-partisan open conversation that had all sorts of people contributing to a way that that looked creatively and culturally and then that kind of got shut down and now it has this very kind of green, safe, dry I'm going to say it, white style to it that only reaches certain people a very, very small sector of society want to engage in that kind of communication And actually, we need to start communicating to people the way that they want to be communicated to in culture, because there is an enormous will for people to do something about this. They just don't know what to do. And they're not being communicated to in a way that reaches them. So that, I think, is a really big factor that's in play, because the institutional ones we may or may not be able to deal with. But the ones to do with like, let's reach people with communications they want to engage with that's really tangible. That's something we can get our hands around. And that's a large part of what we work on.
1: Yeah. There's something that comes to mind when you say that, because I, I agree a hundred percent is, and I wrote a piece about this earlier this year is my frustration with, um, you know, you know, living in California, the vegan movement um, and why I, I stopped using the word vegan. And I just say, I live a plant-based diet because of how judgmental that movement is. Um, and, and sort of also not recognizing that, you know, being vegan, um, is also a privilege in terms of having access to fresh produce that you can afford and alternatives. Cause a lot of people live in parts of this country and parts of the world, especially don't have that. There's a way to do it that can be more inclusive and, and accepting of people that are, you know, making some progress towards it versus this all or nothing. It's my definition Um, um, and if you don't do it, you're an evil person. If you don't do what I'm doing, you're an evil person versus saying like, everyone moves at a different pace. And so if like, for me, I define that movement as anybody who's, who's knowingly and, and, and consciously cutting back on their meat consumption to, to the, to their means and their, and their, and what their means and health allow, as long as anybody is knowingly cutting back and scaling back they're to me, they're part of that movement.
0: But it's a massively complicated psychological thing. I was literally just thinking about this in the store about an hour ago, where the, the human kind of dynamic of making people wrong and and having a go at them. I've been listening to the podcast. Um, There's one about voters in Pennsylvania for the New York Times today, and it played the basket of deplorables clip that, that Hillary Clinton said four years ago, and once you start calling people a basket of deplorables, you don't get them to go, oh, God, you're right. I am deplorable. I'll now vote for you, Hillary. That's not how it happens. And the, and the really weird thing is, um, you know, we, we still, we, we find it very difficult to learn that. Our knee-jerk reaction is, you did a thing I don't agree with, therefore you're a terrible person, and I'm now going to accuse you of that, even though we know if you do it in the other direction, we don't respond well to it either. If someone has a go at you for doing something or, or says you failed or are stupid or, you know, something accused of going on, your first instinct is somewhat to either um, defend yourself about that or attack the other person with whataboutism or whatever. There's all these ways that we don't allow ourselves to just take on the criticism and act on it. Instead, we fight back, and that's what the basket of deplorables, inverted commas, did in 2016. And so we, even someone as smart as Hillary Clinton and and probably all of us now, we'll, we'll all do the same thing where you go, why aren't you wearing a mask? Why aren't you being vegan? Why aren't you whatever in one form or another without realizing that that accusatory, um, you're a bad person, I'm a good person tone never gets you what you want. And in fact, often gets you the opposite.
1: Yeah, I, I, the worst the worst way, if if your goal is to actually change people's mind and change their behavior, objectively the worst way to do it is to yell at them and tell them they're awful. To be fair, I've done it too. Like I'm, I'm not an innocent person in that regard. I have had moments, especially in peak emotional settings or when someone is, you know, coming at me where I charge back. Right. And, and, you know, after the fact, I, I, I can sit back and like, okay, that wasn't the best way to handle that. That wasn't the best way. Uh, that wasn't very effective. That person definitely is not going to change. Um But it's it's hard too. Even I have that difficulty too. When you care about something so deeply, to always keep your emotions in check um, and be objectively as practical uh, on on like you know target outcome as possible, it's it's hard. Like it's 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 learning to manage your your emotions, um, which is hard for any of us to do.
0: But it's also about defaulting more to wouldn't it be great if. Rather than what you're doing is bad, because if Hillary had said, wouldn't it be great if we were all together and, you know, there wasn't racism and blah, 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 rather than um, racists are terrible. And what you're doing is you're providing a positive alternative for people to look at and and make them not feel like you, you can you can let them discover for themselves whether their behavior is problematic or not, but what you're you're then saying to them is, hey, we could all get together and, you know, bipartisan this, and I'd rather not keep it all to American politics. But it's a matter of giving people a good alternative. And and one of the things we talked about um, with a creative friend of ours about flying is that flying is now this horrible commuter chore where you go to really depressing airports and you wait in a queue and you have a horrible grim experience. When it started, it was the best thing ever where you had a suitcase with stickers on and you're like, wow, I'm going to this other part of the world. And instead, we got to this point where flying is rubbish but we want to do it four times a year instead of making it special once a year. And it's kind of amazing how we've kind of taken what what could be good and and could be amazing and screwed it into being this awful experience that really, weirdly, we want to do more often. And
2: the other The other other thing I was going to say about that thing where where you get caught in that sort of shame loop is that um, the alternative to the shame loop is something else that Ben talks about a lot, which is this idea of donut plus.
1: Real quick, the other part of communication I want to touch on is that I also think is problematic, and here I want to hear your thoughts on this: is the is a kind of one size fits all, and and failing to recognize that we're all very different people who learn differently. Um, who have different backgrounds who are, you know, uh, different needs. Um and I'll give you two tangible examples in my life uh this year. So my father is somebody who, you know, I'd say up until this year wasn't, you know, he's aware of climate. Um uh but what you know just hadn't 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 been a big priority for him. And he's a very practical data driven um person. Uh he will respond to, you know, strong data from sources he trusts. Um, and that, that can be very persuasive to him um, because he has that practical analytical mind. And so what I did with him is I had a, I took this online you know, intro to the climate crisis, I forget the name of the course, class on Coursera from the University of Michigan. I specifically chose University of Michigan because it's where he got his graduate degree from. So there's instant trust and credibility with that institution with him. And he came out of that class and it was like very, very kind of data driven just totally different perspective on this issue and has really been making substantial changes in, you know, recycling, composting, eating less meat, a lot of things that he wasn't thinking about before. And then I'm totally different person. Another friend who is, you know, I would classify this person as a more kind of touchy feely, um, uh, you know, kind of, you know, emotionally driven person. What I did with this person is I took him camping into nature. They'd never been camping, never really experienced, um, that, that nature in that way, um, for the first time and came out, you know, a few days being immersed in it, just blown away with this sort of the beauty, the tranquility, um, the, the sort of positive vibes. And that person has since been making a lot of changes and becoming, um, uh, the climate activist in their own way. And I, I draw on those two examples because, you know, there are two people that, you know, you could have not, the second person would not have responded to, you know, a Coursera data driven class. And my father, if you would taken camping, he's been camping many times before, it wouldn't have really changed his mind. He'd just been like, yeah, I, I enjoy the outdoors, but like that, that's where it ends. And so, you know, this notion of having to also tailor messaging and understand the need to tailor messaging um, to people learn in different ways. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you go about that when you're also, you know, trying to you know, scale and reach as many people as possible, which then can sometimes push you towards having this, having to choose a one size fits all type of uh, type of message. But, but, but,
0: <laughs> um, I, I'm just to say very quickly that I, one thing I keep saying is that the most important letter in gigantic fucking solutions is the S on the end of solutions, because it's not going to be one size fits all because the problem, as you say, is, is completely different for different people. And it could be that in, Florida, you need to lean on the fact that insur- the insurance market is going to collapse because no one's going to insure hurricane path places anymore. And the same in, in California, you know, insurance companies will be insane to, to keep insuring places that may well be devastated by wildfires soon. So if the insurance market collapses, the mortgage market collapses, the mortgage, bar- mar- mortgage market collapses, the banks collapse. So. That this is what we're going on to the climate crisis. This is into other things. But if you talk about that, you may well get, let's call it in a cliche, money-obsessed Republicans to start caring about it. Because once the financial system, banks and insurance collapses, that's where the 401k is and stocks, any of that kind of stuff. So what I'm saying is you can talk to tree-hugging hippies uh, in, in Democrat bubbles on the coast in one way. But you can find another way to speak to other people that you know the climate crisis is is bad in many ways for many different people. And, and you can always find other solutions um, in that plural version.
2: And, and I would also say, and this is, again, something George Marshall talks about um, in his book and also did in, in the podcast he did with me, was um, there are communities who have just not been communicated with at all. And we sort of forget that that's a large part of it. And that's partly because of the polarization, the bubbles that we've been stuck in because of social media. So inevitably because of algorithms, you start seeing things that go along with your worldview and perpetuate your worldview. So the likelihood of receiving cultural input that does not align with your worldview or is just entirely external to it becomes less and less if you're in normal social media sp- spheres and that's where your culture is coming from. So. I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done to actually reach out to people and, and start letting them know things, you know, traditionally governments should have done that, haven't done that. Um, But we as a community can do it ourselves. There is, I mean, gigantic fucking solutions is just a series of briefs that the reason we wrote those briefs was because we knew those are the things that people need to take action on and can take action on. And they're not being asked to. And and this can't rely on corporations or nonprofits to ask them to do those things or governments, then maybe we can just create the briefs and, and have people tackle those briefs themselves and see if they can find unusual and entertaining ways of reaching people to ask them those questions. So I think I, I think with these communities, like for example, George Marshall says that evangelicals are very, very rarely reached. With this communication, even though it's written in the Bible and, and something that a lot of evangelical groups take very seriously, that it is our duty to look after the earth. And and often religious groups can be enormously effective in um, forming communities, uh, building coalitions, making changes because they they have a central hub around their place of worship and they're not being... Powerfully communicated to about what the climate crisis is and what they, as a community, community, could do to protect themselves and mitigate the outcomes. So, I, I think, I think absolutely, there's no one size fits all. And and the other thing I would say that's interesting about the two stories that you gave us that I do think there is a consistent strand through both of those stories, and that strand is consistent in everywhere where I, on a personal level I've had an impact in how people. Um, change their behaviors around the climate crisis which is you took a personal interest in what it would take for them to shift their view so you actually vouched for the outcome and and when people feel like someone puts themselves on the line to improve life for them then they'll engage it is the distinct opposite of shaming somebody it's where you actually go look I really care about you so I thought this might be a way that you would be interested in engaging in this thing that I'm really engaged with and and people recognize that they recognize when someone is actually putting themselves on the line to stand in their shoes to be where they're at and and I don't see any reason why communications can't function in that way too it's just that we have to make sure that People are being communicated to by people who understand their world, who are inside their world, who are willing to be part of their world and, and culturally respond to it. You know, as, as Ben said, different people are dealing with different things. Mustafa Santiago Ali talks a lot about um, the various sacrifice zones in the US where people are dealing right here and right now with the, the implications of the climate crisis. And they deserve to know what's going on. They deserve to be listened to and to be, you know, invited to take actions to support their own communities and supported in what they're doing. So that it, it's a big job. You need a large community to cover it. But our whole point is to enrol people in stepping up and taking on a piece of that and going with it.
1: You know what? My theory, and and please shoot holes in this, um, is that no matter how many pro climate regulations and governments uh, step up no matter how many you know uh, corporate ceos become do good or climate ceos it's it's not going to matter unless we have a cultural change around you know living with climate as top of mind um, and when i when i say that i don't i'm not putting it all on individuals and individual action i'm talking about the cultural change that that embodies an individual, a corporation and a government, because we're all part of, part of, you know, forming these cultures. Would you, would you agree or disagree that this, this cannot be solved without a cultural change um, uh, or that, it, you know, even if we never have that cultural change, there's enough that the people on the fringes of that culture can do to, to get us out. Of this of this bind and, um, and and ultimately save this planet, or do you think it does require it is going to require um, a change in culture?
0: Well, culture, as as you've put it and sort of suggested, and there's a there's a very wide kind of definition of that. When you first said it, I was reminded of when we were watching Spider Man a couple of years ago, and uh, vegan lasagna was a was a punchline of a joke. It was funny, ha <laughs> vegan lasagna—that's for idiots. And I think culturally, in that way. Things, things are changing because people realize there's a responsibility to their words and actions. If you're talking about in the whole wide world of how we exist together as, as people and the, the culture that that, that is, I, like I said earlier, I just think this conversation is getting louder and louder and louder. So th- there's no way it's going in the other direction. You know, with every fire, with every hurricane, with every flood, um, you know, more and more people are coming over onto the side of this is a terrible thing, possibly directly for me, possibly very soon. And the more and more that happens, the quieter and quieter the other side of things gets. And the more undeniable the need to do things is like, the oh, whole do of a Green New Deal. If you said it 10 years ago, I don't think you'd get a very receptive kind of audience to, for it. And in fact, I don't think Joe Biden would have gone in that direction unless he sort of felt like things were, were happening that, that pushed it that way, as they have over the, the course of the summer, like it's infrastructure and it's uh, doing things for the climate and it's helping with um, employment and, and, and that kind of thing. We're now in a place where that is a viable thing to happen in America, where it wasn't 10 years ago or even five years ago. So the culture has shifted and is shifting and I think it's a supply and demand thing where people are demanding those things happen. People are now supplying what people need and want and things are just moving that direction. Whether they move far enough and fast enough is a whole nother matter. But I feel like, yeah, undeniably, it's going in the right direction and will continue to do so.
2: I, I, I would add to that that the cultural shift that's required is courage. So um, the vast majority of the impact of the climate crisis is being created by a very, very small minority of people. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's not the people that are being most impacted by the climate crisis. It is the people that are, you know, that are wealthy have that much more extra income. Um, if if you look at the numbers, I mean, aside from obviously the fact that there there are large corporations producing a lot of the waste and a lot of the carbon. So um, the things that stop those shifts in behavior happening are to do with social standing, primarily. They're to do with what do I look like to my neighbors? What do I look like to my colleagues? What do I look like to my boss is now a bad time to bring up this thing that we could shift. And we're beginning to see that courage show up like Ben says in that cultural shift it is courageous and it's really interesting things like the climate has not been on the debate um, agenda for the two debates that came so far but those journalists that moderated decided to put those questions in so there are people who are going okay this is a little bit uncomfortable but I'm now going to step beyond my comfort zone and say the thing or do the thing, because I feel like if I do that, I will be doing something, I need to do something. And as people begin to recognize that that experience is not fear, but courage, and that courage is empowering, but courage is is something that works collaboratively. The more we're courageous as communities, the more our voice gets heard, the more we're capable of causing. And I think that cultural shift brings everything else with it, because we just need to show up for our communities and in our communities as taking those steps and that being something positive and exciting and and empowering and people will come along. So I, I, I I think the courage is the cultural shift.
1: let's get back to gigantic fucking solutions <laughs> it's still it's so enjoyable saying it every time it, like doesn't it doesn't lose any of its luster yeah um and let's talk about the game and how to play it and um yeah tell us tell us about the game and um uh you know what feedback you've gotten from from people who have played it and uh yeah walk walk us through
2: it sure uh, so the The idea of it being a game is specifically, again, in, in the same context that gigantic fucking solutions undercuts the kind of piousness of the environmental conversation, the turning the tackling of the communications into a game was to take away the sort of, I don't know, the feeling that it was a should do. I think a lot of people feel that a response to the climate crisis is something where they have to be really earnest and sensible and and so it ends up looking like a chore and we wanted everything about gigantic fucking solutions to be empowering for people and so one of the things that makes things empowering is when you turn it into a game it sort of takes the pressure off it but it also means that you look at it from a different perspective so you look at it from a perspective of well if I was going to play this as a game what would I do that would be unusual or fun or different so um because you know, we're not giving people money to do this. Uh, we did want to say actually after the, after the interview, um, that we started yesterday, um, climate communications is really badly funded, like spectacularly badly funded. So there is no money in it right now. So, um, we, I, 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 almost wanted to make that a key point of what we talk about when we talk is to to be a call out like if you really really want public behavior to change around the climate crisis then we are going to have to start finding ways of funding it properly not little bits of grant money here and there but like serious sums of money behind having people understand what's going on but in the context of that when we were writing the briefs for gigantic fucking solutions and knowing that we were asking people to come up with creative ideas that we don't have funding for we're not an, even a non-profit organization. We are a grassroots initiative that you want to create something that is exciting and intriguing for people so that they're looking at it in terms of cracking a code rather than um, like this is a brief. Do your job. Get the work out the door. Hope it turns out. OK, so that's why it's a game. Um, and we we've done various things in order to build it out as a game, including literally creating a physical game of something called Cracktivism, which is a four-hour sprint that we designed with another person called Maria Scaletti for people across the spectrum of uh, policy and creativity and production and uh, science and academia to actually play a four-hour sprint on the briefs of Cracktivism. And we ran several sessions before we got shut down for... um, COVID, and in fact, also ran two online sessions. Um, and, and that exists. It exists in a digital form and in a physical form. So one of the things that we can say to people is if you want to go away and play the game of cracktivism, which is gigantic fucking solutions and tackle a brief that way, then we have all the resources for that too.
1: Um, so there's, there's a, a game that's designed online um, that you can do in person or with other people over the phone, um, Zoom or whatever. Um, where, uh, you're essentially taking a brief, bringing other people's in to talk about it. Um, and is, is it primarily that version just, just to kind of discuss, um, the, what's in the briefs, um, with each other or, or is there any other kind of rules or outcome?
0: Well, we've got, there's, there's a proper structure to lead to action. We don't do anything unless it leads to action because there's too much, I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers right now. There's too much awareness. Um, and we're all pretty aware of a lot of stuff. And even then, when you get aware, what happens? So unless you take action, it's all a little bit pointless. Um, but yeah, there's there's a structure which um, maybe Gabby could go into in more detail. But you start discussing it. And the first thing we do is confess to a crime in that area that we've all done, just to make sure we're all kind of on the on the level about Buying clothes we didn't need, or travelling when we didn't have to, or whatever. We're all, you know, none of us is perfect. Let's let's just get that on the table and then start talking about it, so we don't all feel like someone's really super holy and amazing, and the rest of us all feel a bit bad because we're not. And so we can go through our own experiences and come at the problem from our own uh, skill sets, experiences, and you know histories, and um, we're given more of a structure to look at. The problem in in, in a way that 's more effective, because we might all think about water use and go oh well it 's probably swimming pools and golf courses, and then you go, oh no hang on it 's this, that or the other i mean we, we get we get the the structural background to go there 's no point in thinking about it in this area. we need to think about it in that area, and then we come up with ideas and do you want to talk about sticking things on walls
2: well? <laughs> yeah um, and, and by the way we 're very happy to give the resources yeah. that are running the Cracktivist events away to anybody. So if you want to post it when you post the interview, you're very welcome to. Um, Essentially, the way that the Cracktivism works is that by bringing people from different backgrounds. So say uh, the last one that we did um, via Zoom, for example, was about regenerative agriculture. So one of our briefs is how do we make regenerative practice something that people understand? Because it's very complex when you start talking to people about What is it to save soil? And what does that mean for carbon uh, being drawn out of the atmosphere? And if you want to engage the public in that so that it becomes a public conversation, like veganism has become a public conversation, then you need to find a much more um, attractive way of selling it than the way that it exists now, which is extremely academic. So the way that we had the um, event for that, and we had about 12, 13 people on the Zoom event for four hours, is that we had three speakers who came from different areas of the regenerative Process. So one of them was a regenerative uh, academic, one of them worked in the regeneration of rainforest, and one of them worked in regenerative agriculture. And they talked about their various fields within regeneration to the rest of the crew, which were made up of people who came from more creative backgrounds, like art directors and graphic designers and copywriters, uh, and people in production. And And then they talked about the breakdowns they had in communicating to people what they were doing. And then... What we do is we run a sprint. So the creative people work with the academic or, or people come from science backgrounds to start going, okay, well, what if we looked at this in a different way? And and we we spitball lots and lots and lots and lots of ideas. And then during that process, having got the ideas all out there, we then – start looking at the efficacy of those ideas, how feasible they are. Are they something that would be extremely labor intensive or require a lot of money? And then what level of impact would they have if they worked? And at the end of the process, at the end of the sprint, what you end up with is two or three really good ideas and groups of people who are willing to go away and start exploring how you get those out into the world. Now, the the sprint process is obviously just four hours and that's fast. And then getting the ideas out into the world takes time. And obviously, because these are other people's ideas, I can't share any of them with you in the podcast but but it's actually starting to look at these intractable ideas from a much more uh i don't know advertising background avenue so could we find a way of using computer games to talk to people about regenerative ag could we find a way of uh doing a different kind of lobbying to talk to people about regenerative ag rather than going around. What what happens is when you have people stuck in their own silos, and this happens a lot with academia and science. and, And we think a large part of the breakdown in communication of the climate crisis is that in academia and science, there are certain rules of communication which work really well in those communities, but don't work well when you're just trying to talk to the public. That that when people are working inside those spaces they don't really see the wood for the trees as far as how they might communicate to the public about what they're doing so by bringing in a completely different creative point of view you can suddenly get inspiring access points for communication and then those are the things that we run with after the briefs
1: have you had uh thoughts or discussions on you know kind of extending it into an actual like physical board game or a mobile app or um, you know, do you think it'll get, get there, get to that, that point?
2: Um, I actually did make it as a very cheaply made prototype physical board game when I, I was in a, um, uh, uh God, what's it called? I,
0: can't
2: remember. <laughs> I was in a thing called misfits, which was a, you might have to edit this. I'm sorry to do this for you. An incubator at the end of last year and we had an exhibition day and i actually turned it into a physical board game which i have photographs of and again i'm very happy to share that with you uh like to make it look like a 1940s board game and it's fully functional you can play practivism using everything that's in it um i think from a environmental perspective it makes more sense for it to function digitally than physically because you don't really want to be producing more stuff when you don't have to um but we we have that also as a thing that we're looking at as to how we would turn that into a, a piece of digital content that people could play because um, it wouldn't be that hard to do. But again, like everything else, it requires someone who wants to take that and run with it to build it.
1: Well, I uh, I look forward to playing the game. <laughs> I, have, I have not I have not played yet. So maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you host a gameplay? Do you, do you still play yourselves, or have you played so many times that you're... Ooh,
2: you're it's me. fun. It's actually
1: fun. So maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you host a gameplay? Do you, do you still play yourselves, or have you played so many times that you're...
2: No, not at all. We, we hosted it in person up until March, and then after lockdown, we did two more. So we did one in April and May. And then because there are a couple of other initiatives that have come out of doing gigantic button solutions that we wanted to put real energy behind, one of them being Green the Bid, which is an initiative I'm a co-founder on, which is um, creating a community within the commercial advertising industry in North America to uh, make commercial production sustainable. And there's a lot of work that's involved in making that happen. So we um, put a rain check on... On the uh, Cracktivist meetings while we got that up and running, but that's due to launch actually next week. So I will be looking again once that's launched to uh, to get Cracktivism up and running again.
1: And I just want to, you know, we don't, we don't have probably time to go through, course of course, each of these briefs. But I just for the listeners, I want to, you know, kind of read the briefs out loud because I think the briefs themselves, just the, the the titles of them, do a great job of helping to educate people around what the you know kind of main sort of pillars are. So these briefs are <laughs> reduce meat consumption by 90%, reduce transport of people and products by 90%, reduce clothing consumption by 95%, reduce water waste by 90%, reduce food waste by a hundred percent, reduce pointless consumption by a hundred percent. Um, I laugh at that one cause, uh, I'm actually helping people understand what's pointless. What's not I, is, Sounds sounds, um, mind numbing to try to (laughs) distill um, and get and get um, alignment on Um, just knowing, knowing, knowing people and knowing also we're in a world and which is just consumption focused, like every tech company that exists is 24 seven trying to get you to consume stuff.
2: Well, that's their business model now, isn't it? We, we watched The Social Dilemma, and that was the elegant business model for all social media was how do we make it advertising-based, and then you have to sell everything to keep the platforms going.
1: Um, make carbon drawdown from soil trees analogy, the biggest investment of the next decade. Enroll in China into stepping up their environmental targets even further. Um, get the most polluting companies in the world to create legal and public carbon negative commitments by the end of the year. So those are the nine briefs um and um yeah i mean all all spot on all things that i think about all the time um things that i've made changes to number 8 is interesting i've actually formed a um a, a bit of a think tank uh we get together once a month um around the china around this the issue in southeast asia um going on with because you know china the biggest worry i have just you know about china is not that they're not going to crack down <clears throat> and make things greener on the domestic side, but the impact they're having, particularly in Africa and Southeast Asia as they like kind of steamroll their way in, um, uh, to, uh, expanding their economy, um, expanding their footprint in those markets. Um, they're doing so with just total disregard of any environmental factor because it's not mainland China, um, you know, I think I really do think they kind of see it as well, you know, Thailand, Indonesia will have to deal with this, um, you know, on their own, but we're, our job is to expand our economy and buy up land. And we are dealing with this in Laos where, you know, some of the land, a team I work with is trying to protect a biodiversity area. Um, we, every time we try to, we're almost at an agreement with the government to get a, a plot of area to protect, um, um. The, some Chinese buyer comes in and just puts up too much money to mine it and exploit it. Um, and there's nothing we can do. You know what I mean? Um, for a developing country like Laos, money goes a long way. And so uh, I'm most concerned about China's impact environmentally outside of China than I am in, within China, honestly.
0: One of the, just to, just to explain a little bit about the briefs is the, the reason they're there and the reason they're written kind of simply in that way is because one of the most paralyzing things in this situation is people wanting to get every last detail right, and people going, "I could do this, but then I read the paper tomorrow and doing that's actually wrong." Like, I can go vegan, but what about the food miles on my mango that's being flown in from, you know, some part of the Caribbean? Um, those are things which which give people a really good get-out clause not to do anything. So we just reduce all the things down to their very simplest essences, and then we discovered that. A lot of people would use a get out clause by saying, hey, what about China? And we were like, "Okay, sort out China, because, you know, people will always find a way. We're not saying in any way, you know, what you just said explains quite how complicated an issue China really is. But at the same time, we've made a lot of other countries our manufacturing base. And I'm talking about we being the West, really. And that means that they produce much more pollution than we do. Um, but that's because they're making our stuff for us. And then we blame them. And so it's it's a pretty difficult thing. But that doesn't mean that we can't try and work with what they're doing to reduce the environment environmental impact of what they have. But it was just it, the China thing was to stop people having that get out clause. And go, OK, if you think China's a problem. Sort out China. And then the other funny thing about it is we just went all the way and said, reduce these things by 90 percent or whatever it happened to be, because, you know, there's no point in asking for something that, you know, if we're going to ask, we might as well ask for the thing we really want as opposed to the, the half, halfway house. So we're like, well, we'd like it reduced by 90%. And then, really oddly, this, um, I don't know if you heard about it, but there's a, there's a virus that's been going around <laughs> the world this year. It's called COVID 19. So, what happened in March was that flying did stop by 90%. And we were like, whoa, be careful what you wish for. Um, and it, it's really odd that, that you then see that these things can happen you know, they were like pie in the sky ideas. And we're like, how do you stop traveling by 90%? And then you go, well, it can be done. We can all cope as a, as a planet and as a species, if we stop travel by 90%. So now you've seen proof that it doesn't, we don't all like, you know, you don't bring everything to a grinding halt. Things still find a way. So um, it's been a really fascinating year and it's been a fascinating proof that you can ask for these things and still reasonably have them happen. So, That's just a long way of explaining why the briefs are formatted as they are. And there's obviously a lot of background information on each one if people want to read further.
2: The other thing I would say about China is um, that that a lot of what we're talking about in the context of how people relate to what they do or don't do with climate behaviors is externalized costs. And and just like you point out with China, they're beginning to make quite – Big public statements about what they're going to do within China, but that what they're willing to do externally, where it's not on China's soil is potentially another matter. And in fact, if you look really at everything that we do that is harming the environment, it's all where the externalized costs are being borne by somebody else. So the cheaper your product, it's not a cheap product. It's just someone else is paying for it somewhere else. And I think that that is a large part of the communication as well, that a lot of people just don't realize that impact that, that just because it looks like on paper, you're getting a piece of plastic for 50 cents. You're not actually getting that piece of plastic for 50 cents because that piece of plastic is poisoning a water supply or it's, you know, all, all the associated costs that we're not even present to because we choose not to be present to them.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 it's the challenge. cause I, you know, obviously the three of us very like-minded on, on these points, and i try to have these conversations with family and friends but i i notice you know as i as i point out the sort of those externalities of the things that they're buying or using you know it is a slippery slope towards you know just kind of throwing up throwing hands up in the air and be like okay so like everything that is offered to me has some like terrible byproduct <laughs> and and so like am i just meant to sit here And, and, and in his 24 seven meditation until death, the only actual way I can, um, you know, be a good, good, uh, climate citizen. (laughs) Um, and I, and I, and I, and I, you know, empathize with that feeling because, you know, that's also like, and that's where the balance comes in. Right. Because if we, if we push too many people down that path, we're not going to accomplish our goals either, because then it's just going to feel like, you know what, fuck this. Like, I'm tired of like everything in front of me and everything I do being labeled as bad. I'm just going to I'm just going to ignore this so I can have some peace of mind and some happiness. And then all of a sudden any progress you made with that person could could be, you know, could be gone.
2: Again, this is the creative response, right? Often the conversation that needs to be had is not the conversation you think you want to have. So, it may be that the conversation all these externalized costs mean that everything you're buying is bad for the planet is a really ineffective conversation right but the externalized costs are still there so when you have products and just just for an example in the same way that i love slutty vegan um i think thread up the real real um heroin and uh grails are an extraordinary response to the fast fashion industry um if you shame people for fast fashion you can very quickly get into a slippery slope of conversation about what it costs for people to buy clothes and whether they can afford to buy clothes if it's more expensive than fast fashion. But when you actually create an alternative solution, which is the secondary clothing market, which is entirely viable and is now not just viable as it was a year and a half ago when we first started looking at gigantic fucking solutions, but a burgeoning market that a lot of other companies are getting very interested in getting into. Now you start seeing a real possibility of hitting that 90% number because it's it's no longer viable for the fast fashion industry to function the way that it does. And these conversations are, as Ben said, getting extremely loud. So in in many instances, we're not saying to people, it's your fault that these costs are externalized. You can't buy anything. What we're saying is a lot of these things have happened because you didn't know the impact. The companies weren't being present to the impact. But what's amazing is these other companies have come along and they have solutions. And these are the solutions you should check into. And people are taking people up on that. There is you know, this extraordinary response. Because I I firmly believe that the vast majority of people, given the choice, would take the action that was good for the environment as long as it didn't mean that they lost the other thing that they needed, whatever that was, whether it's clothing their children or, you know, eating a burger, that as long as they get a good solution to that thing, they would always rather have the thing that was better for the environment. There are very few people who would say, I actively want to screw the environment. I hope I'm doing that. (laughs) And there is one of the facts as well, which is, um, I interviewed Tom, Tom Chi from uh, who used to be Google. He extraordinary, um, about a month and a half ago. And he talks about, um, the th- fact that you have, I think it's like, I can't remember the numbers, but there's roughly the same tonnage of human beings on earth as there is of ants and human beings eat 3% of their body weight each day and ants eat 30% of their body weight each day. So 10 times as much as us which means that ants in theory should be enormously destructive to the environment. But the thing about the way ants consume is that everything they do is regenerative. They put more back into their environment than they take out. So they are a hugely valuable part of the ecosystem we have developed these extremely extractive practices where every time we consume something we are taking more out than we're putting back in so the conversation of well what would it look like if every time i consume something i was putting something back into the environment rather than taking something out and that then becomes a much more interesting conversation to have with people because it creates possibility instead of shame
1: yeah ants haven't haven't um kind of uh, discovered sort of free market capitalism yet
2: no like Give them time. <laughs> They'll <Don't> get
1: there. <laughs> they, discovered um, the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> they discovered
0: everything
2: in our kitchen though. They everything in our kitchen. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I just want to, so for Gigantic fucking Solutions, um, the uh, the website is password protected, and that's because it's obviously by design, and um, I think you mentioned because you want it to be sort of invite only and spread that way. Have you noticed um, that it's mostly kind of, I, people like ourselves, like, uh, you know, very kind of green living, uh, climate fighters that are kind of the early adopters of this have so have you seen it extend, um, and expand into sort of broader sectors or, um, you know, people that are are not that involved, not that aware, uh, not that, uh, not that aware. Um, I imagine, you know, you don't have full visibility into this, but what, what is your sense of the people that have, um, used the site and, and played the game so far?
0: I just wanted to say really quickly, the reason the reason it's password protected is also because it requires more explanation than the website can give. So if we just tried to put everything on the website, there'd be too much stuff and no one could really get through it. And it'd be one of those off-putting things with way too many words. So we kind of do it by password so that Before anyone gets there or while they get there, they get the half hour explanation with us first because everyone has questions. Like we've been talking about various parts of it for, you know, probably a third of, of the conversation we've been having because it's not so like if someone said, why is there China on there? There's a good explanation for it. Or what do you expect us to really do? There's an explanation for that. But if we put that all in there it would be unwieldy. So it can't really work in that way. So we're we're always happy to have the conversation with anyone, including anyone listening to this. We'll always make half an hour to have that chat, but otherwise it just becomes, you know, we're all used to websites and then there's stuff on there, but, you know, People are busy, and, and they've got stuff to do in their day, and they just like, oh, God, that looks like too many words. I, I'm not going to do it. And we also, we don't want people passing it on without the explanation because then it just becomes, hey, why have they put China on here? Well, China's all right compared to America. Okay, yeah, well, let's talk about it. So I just wanted to make that a little clearer.
2: Yeah. And, and- <laughs>
0: I, th- I find it's, well, personally, I think that people have actual questions about it. And I know the questions tend to be normal. But the other thing is we live in this strange world where, you know, things like tweets and websites and whatever, that's that's how we feel like it's the best way or an okay way to communicate with other people. We, we feel like talking to actual human beings, and I'm, I'm not saying that in a jokey way, is a much, much better way to, you know, get connected with people and the issue itself. You know, you can see... Our faces and hear our passion about this subject, and if you have anything you want to say or hear, um, you can talk about it and that 's so much better than just hey we 've written some words and we 're going to hope that the typeface conveys our emotional uh state when we 're saying those words it 's just not it 's not adequate for the conversation that needs to happen here it'll it'll do it to some degree, but to do it properly and for us to be enrolling and inspiring properly. We want to have the conversation and we want to meet people face-to-face and we want to, hey, join join in with what this could be. It's much better done in person.
2: And to answer your original question, um, we there, there are specific communities that, that Gigantic Bugging Solutions itself is aimed at. It's specifically aimed at people who are engaged in communication or people who are engaged in the climate. Um, and so... Those parameters are relatively small, in that we're not going to be speaking to people who come from not not with what gigantic fucking solutions is people who come from uh, a background that is in no way connected to either of those things. Because it's a it's a an internal conversation. It's like you know if you are inside a corporation, the communications that happen there are different to the external communications that you have. But even then, I would say, obviously, not speaking to the climate community who have very clear views on what's going on with the climate or they're very differing views on how to tackle it but with our own industry with people who work in the creative communications industry from creatives to people who are in accounts and people who are in strategy and so on th- there is a vast difference in how much people know or understand about the topic how much they've engaged in it to this point their their experience of what the climate crisis is to this point and and to us that's a large part of the joy of having the conversations rather than just putting the website out there is that what that means is that we get to discover more and more about how people are relating to this conversation how they are relating to each of those individual briefs and their personal responses to that so our our advertising community is not like the green community it is it is it is a it has a different flavor to it, I
0: would but say. But we've spoken to some definite Republicans yeah, on, in, in our journey here. Like we, we end up talking to people who they do sympathize with the whole thing, but from a completely different angle. And it's fascinating and really in, enjoyable to know that we can share a degree of this conversation with people who we're not politically aligned with. And it's it's really refreshing to understand that. So that partly answers your question, because these people do, they're environmentally sympathetic, but from a completely different angle. And it's, it's really, you know, opened our eyes a bit more.
1: Well, let's get to the, the last couple of questions here. Um, uh, cause I, you know, I want to be cognizant of your time. And also I think we have um, over an hour and a half right now on, on tape. <laughs> um, so I'm going to skip the the conservation question, just an issue of that, but I, I just want to put it out there for the listeners that there's also a massive, challenge of communication in this field and this is one that is sort of closer to me um on the the value and work of wildlife conservation and that a lot of people still look at it as just an altruistic oh you're doing it for the just the moral good of you know helping these wild species um but actually no like well yes but I mean, that's part of it but um there's a massive sort of role every species plays in our wild ecosystems and those wild ecosystems play a massive role in sequestering carbon and providing clean air and um you know a number of other benefits uh they serve us um and you know without those wild species we won't have those wild ecosystems and uh without those wild ecosystems we'll have more climate problems so um i just want to point that out for listeners that these things are all interconnected and um if you come across someone working in wildlife conservation don't don't um you know, kind of, uh, understand that they're not doing that just for the good of the animals. Uh, they're doing that for the good of, of you as well. So that's all I kind of want to make sure to mention on that. Um, another time I'll, I'll probably enlist you both and your skills and how to, how to, how to solve that one. Um, the, the, the question I want to ask if, you know, if you're sitting in front of a group of recent graduates that are kind of going into the fields of, let's say advertising and media, um, you know, what, what would you say to them? You know, um, what would you tell them? Maybe one of you can tackle that one and the other of you can tackle the other question, which is um, now you're in a room of sort of old industry, you know, guards in the advertising media world. I'm sure you, you, you know, you've been in this many times. they um, are trying to balance sort of shareholder returns and um, you know uh, you know, taking these, these, uh, these things seriously. And you know, you you want them to do it and not just to sort of check a PR you know, box, um, and not go beyond that, but actually push, push, push far beyond that. So maybe one of you can tackle how you, how you would address the first group. And then one of you can tackle how you would, would address the second group.
0: So the, sure. the first one, um, and the first one, it, it's really fascinating when, when people sort of discuss, uh, people in, in sort of, as it were different generations. And I think it's, it's, it does as much harm as good to go generation Z and millennials and whatever, as if they're a completely discrete group that does things in a certain way that, um, you know, behaves in a herd mentality that's different to to anyone else. But I, I, you know, we have kids and I think it's really interesting to kind of get your head around the world that kids are graduating into these days, kids or young people or whatever, you know, the world that they see. And I said to Gabby the other day, you know, however we see the future in terms of the climate crisis, you know, we, we may be on this planet another 40 years, maybe a bit more if we're lucky. If you're young, you know, you're seeing the vast majority of your future playing out in a world of the consequences of the climate crisis that are going to be far, far more impactful than we could ever imagine. So I try and if I can see it through their eyes, that's um to me, something that's much more kind of helpful, because I'd say someone leaving now, leaving university now, it, whether in the media or anything else, you know, this must be a front and center issue for them, unavoidably. You know, you're thinking if I, if, they, if they leave now and manage 40 more years, they might have another 40 years after that. So um, I don't know. I think in the media world, it's a much larger conversation about where media is right now, about where, say, advertising is and, and communications and things like that, because... We're, you know, 10 or 15 years into a massive change in how we communicate with each other. You know, the way social media has has altered that, you know, in, in good and bad ways. Um, the way the Internet, which is still, you know, functionally not more than 30 years old, has changed things uh, as well. So um, it's really good to give advice because... I, we, everything's changed so much. What are things going to be like in 2025? I had to write a column at the start of the year predicting what 2020 was going to be like. You'll be <laughs> stunned to know I got it wrong. Um, and so did literally everybody else who tried to predict 2020. So I guess the, the thing is to be prepared for it to not be predictable, but at the same time to look at what is most likely to happen and try and kind of work off off that. Uh, the, the the, the possibility for change is massive, though. And we, we spoke to a a guy about starting a course at U, University of Southern California. And we we talked to him about it, and he had, he had one little problem. And he was going, what if the people we speak to don't feel like they really can make a change in this area? And I said, well, you can just say two words to them. One's Greta, and the other one's Thunberg. If you were a 15-year-old schoolgirl in Sweden who is on the autistic spectrum, would you think you were going to be a Nobel Prize nominated you know, world leader in the, in the issue of climate change being tweeted to by Donald Trump on a regular basis? Um, of course he wouldn't. But if she can do it, there's absolutely no reason why someone not on the spectrum, who's not 15, who's not a Swedish schoolgirl, can't have the same degree of impact. So I would say don't in any way underestimate the impact or potential you can have and then look at the situation you're in. I I can't I can't really look at specific circumstances because obviously they're different for everybody. But I just want people to know that they can make a huge
1: difference. Yeah, I want to quickly before um, Gabby, you get to the second question. You know, I just uh, on that last point um, that you made about Greta and hey, you know, uh, if she can do it, uh, we all can do it. The only, I guess, devil's advocate or um, you know caveat i would like to make to that is uh so i spent the last two roles for me personally were in tiktok and snapchat um which you know the, um lots of young people um and uh and particularly in tiktok and there is a uh, a massive issue issue of 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 needing sort of external validity um and i have actually seen this with young people that because of greta's sort of fame um You know, young people that are trying to also um, are being activists and being advocates, um, if they, you know, they don't get the notoriety and popularity that Greta has, they feel like they're doing something wrong and they're not worth um, as much. And it has it can lead to, you know, depression um, and even suicide, which is, you know, very, very all too, too, too common and uh, too widespread um, with teenagers. So I just want to put that out. Not, not, not that I'm trying to put your point down, but I just also want to flag that, um, you don't need, like, y- you shouldn't have to aim to, for Greta Thunberg levels, um, uh, to, to feel validated and, and, and who you are and what you're doing. Um, you influencing one family member, um, one friend, um, or even just, just making the changes for yourself. You know, if you don't influence anybody, but yourself, um, is super valuable in this. Um, so I just, I just want to, want to point that out.
0: Yeah. I think, I think what I was saying is she's the far end of things with a difficult beginning. So you can, you can have agency yourself in in your own circumstances. And and I think your answer really brings home what I was kind of saying in that I, 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 I'm not 20, obviously. Um, if you could see me, it would be obvious. Um, <laughs> And what what they what people are going through, and again going back to the, the way social media has has kind of made external validation such a massive thing for people on on these uh, social media platforms, is something that I find it hard to get my head around because that wasn't a world I grew up in. I, I get it, I understand the whole, you know, telling people how great your day was on on Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of thing, um, but it's a massive massive factor that. Wasn't there when I was graduating myself, so I get it. And then, and it's it's hard to say all the things I said in my answer, and then add it to <laughs> looking for external validity because that's how society has changed in literally fifteen years. So I, I you know, whatever I say, I'm never going to cover everything uh, and 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 get in the shoes of of the people you're talking about. Uh, and I, I really. I have to say my heart goes out to everybody who, who feels like that's a, a thing they have to do because it isn't a thing you have to do if you, you feel that way, but it, it isn't, it doesn't matter. And easy for me to say.
2: And, and, uh, in answer to the second question, cause I was thinking about it while Ben was talking, um, it does actually play back into that thing that you said about being Greta Thunberg and the pressure to have that kind of, uh, excelling in any environment and and I think and we could probably talk for hours about our opinions on uh uh, extractive capitalism um but one of the factors that our generation grew up with the generation before us grew up with and our children are growing up with the tail end of it is this idea that success is competitive and I actually think it's very difficult for the old guard generation to let go of that notion that everything has to be competitive. And I don't think we're going to succeed in breaking down the barriers of what's required in order to tackle the climate crisis, unless we let go of that adherence to competition is king. It it, it requires collaboration. And one of the reasons that we created gigantic fucking solutions and one of the most satisfying things from doing gigantic fucking solutions and also doing green the bed where I'm now speaking to people in production companies and agencies and brands and post houses and caterers and people all around the commercial production process is that people are dying to be part of a community tackling things. And I think young people are dying to be part of a community tackling things and the isolation that young people experience inside the world of social media and one of the reasons why I'm not particularly into social media is because it's commodified that which is inherent in us which is that we want to feel like we're part of something we want to feel like we are part of society we want to feel like we are a valuable part of society we want to feel like we are a community and we have friends and we have support and the more young people are isolated and led to believe that the solution to that isolation is being you know impossibly extraordinary the more harmful that becomes but actually the real solution the solution of building community is available to everybody and when we have conversations with older people in our industry people who were ben's bosses or my bosses or people people who've been around a while there there is also great solace for them in the knowledge that this is not a competitive space that this is a collaborative space if you look at how b corporations operate they they operate pre-competitively, pre around sustainability practices because they want the whole industry to get there. They're not interested in being able to say, look, we tackled our environmental impact and we made sure that no one else did. That's that's not that's not the idea. So there is a relief in it. And I I think the more that we create, and again, this is why gigantic button solutions is a game, the more we create invitations to people to be part of communities tackling inherent community issues together so that we know that we create a better world out of it. You can invite young people to that and old people to that. And, 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 and the experience is gratitude and people roll up their sleeves.
1: The last question for you both. And I'm going to, I'm going to sort of uh, put a, now, I'm going to ask you both to answer this as succinctly as you can, because this is also a question that could be expound, expounded upon for um, for a long long time between the three of us. I'm just going to ask you: in 50 years from now, how will 2020 be remembered? So that's again, um, you know, if uh, what's the, what the, the two or three sentences for you for for each of you that sums up 50 years forward, how how will society look back at the year 2020?
0: Um, I think the the obvious thing, I just wanted to make this longer than you'd like it to be. Um, (laughs) I think we all think it's going to be coronavirus and and the election, and I think it is, but um, I am very much of the opinion there's going to be a virus every five years, if not sooner. So I think, unfortunately, I think we'll look back at 2020 and go, oh, if only this year's virus was like the coronavirus. Um, You're sorry. So bleak. Sorry, but that's because, yeah, <laughs> no, but, but on the flip side of that, I also think we'll look back at it as the time when um, democracy, we got democracy back. And I feel like the election is going to swing back in our direction. And we, we just feel like, oh my God, we just need to breathe again after what's well, going to be three and a half, four years of, of just, I just want the news to be boring again. And I think it's going to be that way. And I think we're all going to have gone, look, that was an interesting experiment. God, please let us never go through that again. And let's put some guardrails into to stop that. So those are just the two things that spring to mind at the moment. I, th- I you know, And I, I think we'll also look back environmentally and go, wow, again, I, I wish things were like 2020. <laughs> I
2: um. I think the interesting thing about 2020 is that we are reaching um, the minority majority in the U S and I think that the two things that have come from that is that finally there is a voice being heard about how much of other people's cultures has been squashed and ignored. And there are the last dying embers of a way of, running the world that are trying to do their last fight back and it will fail. And I think 2020 may well end up being the point at which we look back at history. And it's almost like going from monochrome to technicolor, that there is a narrative that's gone through Western society, that this is what history was. And this is who history uh, admires and, and, This is how the world runs. And 2020 is a pivot point in acknowledgement that that was constructed and it was constructed intentionally oppressively and that we now have the possibility to create narratives of the world looking back from 2020 and going forwards that incorporate all cultures, incorporate what that minority majority has brought historically to what culture looks like and what they bring as we move forward into a very different looking world. And to me, that is exciting and um, moving and and genuinely what I hope to look back on if I get another 50 years.
1: Yeah, for, for me, I'll just say we're going to look back on 2020 and be saddened um, but thankful um, because I I, I want to think it's going to be a wake-up call on a number of fronts, environmentally, politically, socially. Um, and that's the, the optimistic, I guess, end of me, um, you know, the, the pessimism, the cynic of me will say, we'll look back at 2020 and be, we, well, I guess that didn't, that didn't do the trick. That didn't wait. <laughs> <laughs> it could go either way. <laughs> go either way. <laughs> um, well, great. Well, um, thank you so much both for the time. Thank you. Um, and was- thank you for everything you're doing. It's really valuable. Thank you. uh...
2: We'll find out.